Hello everyone, welcome to the 47th episode of Everyday Journal. With me tonight is the awesome James Su from China slash Canada. We are only the two of us tonight because we've got a very, very special topic to talk about, and that is magic in China. Welcome on the show, James. Hey, Julian. It's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Like This is a project that you and me, we have been talking about that for, I think, almost like a year that we wanted to record this podcast. And eventually you just like kicked my ass and told me, okay, we're going to do it this weekend. And yeah, so here we are today. So, James, um, you're not only a player, but you also have your own, you run your own podcast, Humans of Magic, which, according to me, is probably the best magic-related podcast some of our audience has maybe never heard about because you're not focusing on the competitive aspect of magic, but you more want to explore the human behind the player, uh, I want to call it, like the, the personality. So, ho for how long have you been doing this? First of all, I really appreciate your kind words on the podcast. Yes, you've been a huge inspiration to me because I started doing the Humans of Magic podcast, I want to say about two or three years ago. It's been on and off because of my, I guess, normal life and schedule. I haven't been able to crank one out every week like a lot of these amazing content producers have been. But it's been about two or three years and Humans of Magic is really about getting to know the person behind the game. And it's really a lot about their mindset. Uh, I like to describe it as a podcast that's kind of about magic, but not really about magic, because I'm more <laughs> interested in the stories that people have and how they got to where they are. Because oftentimes you hear a lot and you read a lot about competitive tournament players, but you don't really know too much about the personality. So that's what I've been trying to do. That's kind of what I'm most interested in. And I'm really grateful for your support on it because you were a big part of how I started the podcast in the first place, if you remember. Oh, <laughs> the, I mean, I, I benefit from it now because I really, really love listening to these interviews because sometimes you have people on the show that I've seen many, many times on a tournament, uh, but never really gotten to know them really well. And once I listen to your show, it's I'm like, whoa, this guy is like this. I never thought that way. And it's it, to me... I honestly mean it, um, even though we are friends, so I might be biased, but I think yours is probably the best magic podcast I've ever listened to. So if anyone is interested in it, I'm going to put a link down below uh, to your show. How many people have you had on the show, actually? You, you had like 30 or 40? Less than 40. I want to say about 25 to 30 people. Some of the episodes have been multi-part because oftentimes I just enjoy talking to my friends, present company included. We, I just enjoy... <laughs> sort of having a, a good conversation with them. But I definitely definitely around that ballpark. I, I would say that what's really interesting is that every conversation is very different. We always start from a general template, but it often veers into interesting discussions. I think I remember talking to PV about his love of bridge and League of Legends. And then I talked to Jerry Thompson about his struggles with depression. And then I also talked to his co-host on the game podcast, Brian, about his life as a bartender, poker player. So every episode is a little bit different, but I've enjoyed every conversation. And you also had people from Wizards of the Coast itself on it, right? I remember that. Yes. I remember talking to Mike Turian with, about how he created Jace the Mind Sculptor. <laughs> I, I, I would have to say that because I'm such a huge legacy fanatic or fan, Most of the time, the topics veer into legacy or eternal territory. 
But yes, I've had a few Wizards employees on the cast as well. Awesome, awesome. I really got to listen to the next show coming up with Ari Lexi told me, right? We just talked about that. <laughs> yeah, Ari is a very interesting guy. And uh, he has... He's, he's definitely a competitor's competitor, so I, 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 hope you, I hope you can look forward to that one. Oh, definitely. So today I've got you on the show, and I already uh, touched on it. Um, you're a really interesting person with regards to your upbringing in both Canada, but also your, your Chinese background. So you've got a pretty good grasp of both scenes. I want to say like the, the quote-unquote Western scene as well as the, the Chinese scene. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Like where did you grow up and how did you get to China? Sure. So I was originally born and raised in Taiwan. And our family immigrated over to Canada, Vancouver specifically, when I was very young in elementary school. So I've spent a lot of my, I want to say about over two decades in Canada. And that's really the place that I identify most as home. And it's really interesting because I started playing magic with my brother and, uh, you know, got to know kind of the scene um, on the West Coast, going to Seattle a few times because it's really close by. But for the past six, seven years, I've been based out of Beijing, China. For work and other reasons, I've relocated to China and I started to really get into the magic scene here as well, particularly when it comes to Eternal or specifically Legacy, which is the format that I love. And so I've had a lot of experience in playing magic in North America and Europe in the past, but I've also in recent years played a lot of magic in China as well. <laughs> and um, it, it was really helpful that I'm also bilingual. I speak Mandarin fluently. So being able to have both English and Mandarin fluency, I think it really, really helps when, when you're playing in different places. But definitely have found magic to be a very international game. And I'm very fortunate to be able to play magic in China. Now. So you mentioned that you speak Mandarin um, as a native speaker. But when you came over to Beijing, like, I wonder, um, did it take you a while to actually get into the magic lingo as well? Like, I know that in, at least in German, we have some card nicknames and stuff that we say that might probably totally confuse somebody who, even though if they spoke German but never grew up here, they probably wouldn't get it. So I wonder, was it like the same for you when you got into Beijing and played Legacy or Magic for the first time there? Is there like some kind of cultural difference that, that threw you off in the beginning? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I remember first moving to China, and even though I was a Mandarin speaker, it was still hard to get my finger on the pulse of exactly how magic is played here. Not to say that it's a different game. The rules, the tournaments, the structures are all the same, and there's also LGSs or local gaming stores. So it's fairly straightforward to find those in Beijing and also other Chinese major cities. But I think a lot of the times the players speak very quickly. And so when they use certain lingo or certain um, nicknames for cards, it can be tough, right? So I would say that in the beginning, it was just the language itself made it a little bit more challenging. But in general, the players are also very helpful. So for example, when I'm playing in a local tournament and they mention a card or let, let's just say they name a card with Cabal Therapy or something. And I don't know what it is. They, they probably write it down. You know, I can ask for, the, for them to write it down. And we have smartphones. So it's very straightforward to, for, them, for us to take out our phones and they'll type out the, the magic card name and then it'll get translated into English or vice versa if I'm trying to name a card 
on my side and they don't understand what that <laughs> card is. That, that is pretty, yeah, there's always ways, yeah. Do they typically refer to the cards by the Mandarin name or by the English name? Because I know in German, we still use the English name most of the time. Unless we want to make fun of the card, then we use the German name because it's stupid, stupid and yeah. <laughs> uh, great question. So most of the time it's the Mandarin name. In fact, there are players who use exclusively all Chinese cards and decks, right? So I would say that in general, people are not, like let's just let's just use an example right like Tarmogul. yeah so the nickname for that in china or i should just say the translated name is yifu right so uh, short for goif so it sounds very similar to goif but they're not going to say they're not going to literally say tarmogoyf or goif so you just kind of have to figure out that that card is goif and sometimes i would ask them what is that card and then we would either do the smartphone translation they would write down the english name or they draw the they would or they would describe the card like oh you know then you figure it out. So I, I would say that generally speaking, for those listening, like there's no absolutely no problem with just sort of getting acquainted. It might take a little bit of time in the beginning, but generally players are very, very healthy. Do you sometimes get international players to play? Because Beijing is such a major city, I figure you sometimes might get like American or European players. Oh yeah, we have lots of foreign players. So I consider myself to be kind of a foreign player. And we have a few local players who are also from the US or We have one player from Turkey, and they don't speak Mandarin either. So you can imagine that if they're regulars, it's pretty accommodating for them to, to play Magic. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So when you say you're regulars, do you like have weekly tournaments? Um, like How is the scene set up? Uh, I guess you can only talk about Beijing and maybe Shanghai, but that would be super interesting to me as well, because like over here, the scene changed quite a lot over the last five to ten years. So what is the specifically legacy scene in Beijing like? Like how many, how many stores do you have? How many tournaments are there? Legacy in Beijing, we have about three to four gaming stores that have... For legacy, I would say that it's really just one store that has a weekly. But generally speaking, we can get it to fire. We have usually between 10 to 15 players every week. Sometimes it's a little bit lower, sometimes a little bit higher. When, when we get closer to bigger tournaments, we'll want to prepare for that. But it's pretty easy to get games going. You know, people also play online and people can find ways to, to practice at a store. So for Legacy, that's not, that's, uh, it's, it, by my standards, it's actually pretty plentiful. Like you can always get a weekly or, or, a larger, uh, or a larger tournament from time to time. Yeah, you so. told me about that one larger tournament. I don't exactly remember the name, but I might plug it uh, in the show notes uh, because the payout of the tournament was like through the roof. They paid out like two or 300 times the entrance combined entrance fees. Was that in Beijing as well? Yes. So there are, for Legacy specifically, there are two major tournaments every year. The first one in Beijing is called the Orlov Tournament. I think the organizer, Haoboi, he's a big fan of Lord of War or something <laughs> like that. So... Uh, It's not magic related, but he just wanted to name it that. So first of all, like he's a Patreon, right, for, for Legacy Magic. He, he loves the game. Um, a lot of the big tournaments like that are done out of love for the game. So it's not really about expectation of making the money back. I remember that tournament being held every year. There's no, basically payout is guaranteed. I think it was probably 30 US dollars to enter. And the top prize was something like four underground Cs. It was paid out like one through 16 with, dual lands. It was incredible value when you consider the fact that you might only have 100 to 120 players in yeah. that tournament. And that's held every, every year in Beijing. Incredible value. I've tried to convince you and other people to come and 
and see what it's like. And yeah, that's basically a plug, you know, like if you are interested in that, that tournament is generally held at the beginning of the Chinese New Year, which is different every year, but it's generally around the February or March timeframe. So that's a big one. That's the first one I want to talk about. The second one is actually in Guangzhou. So Guangzhou is also a fairly large city in China. Uh, we've traveled to Guangzhou every year to play in this Guangzhou Invitational is Tournament. Is it towards the south? It's actually very close to Hong Kong. So uh, for, for folks who know where Hong Kong is, it's basically surrounding that. And uh, it's incredible too. The payout is very similar. It's an Invitational, but it's very easy to qualify. Basically, we run weekly tournaments in all over China and people who win the weekly tournaments get a, an entrance. So uh, also incredible value, have a lot of fun in that. So those are the two biggest tournaments. The one in Guangzhou, the, it's actually held by, uh, you can actually check it out. The website for that is mtgta.com, mtgta. So TA stands for Tournament Association. Uh -huh. And they're still trying to work out the new name. I think it's just gonna be called the MT, MTGTA Legacy Championship this year. That's actually happening in July every year. So that's also a fun one uh, for folks who want to play in a larger tournament. So those are the two that I know of. And of course, China also has RPTQs, WMCQs, GPs. I've been to a couple in Beijing and Shanghai. So, you know, you can definitely get your magic fix if, if you're here. Great, great. So. Yeah, you actually have me pretty close to, maybe not pretty close to coming because the flight is still expensive. But yeah, the, the, for me, going to Beijing, hanging out with you and maybe even playing Legacy in, in China, that's like some pretty high EV that I want to cash in on someday. Maybe next year. <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of fans here. I mean, oh, you, you told you me that, but I still couldn't believe of... it. But your friend, yeah. um, Reinhardt, on Twitter, by no, the way, I mean, that's, that's why I want you and <laughs> Yeah, that's why I want you and a couple other guys to, to come, you know, like people all people follow legacy very passionately. So, you know, your articles are translated really? into Chinese and people read. Oh, yeah, like wow. people, people. Yeah, we can probably get to that in yeah. a second. But but yeah, we, you have a lot of fans. So if you come by, you'll be almost like a, a quasi celebrity. So it should be good. Times. <laughs> I'm blushing in front of the computer right now. <laughs> oh, yep. Yeah, I'm talking about that. Like, um. Is there like a centralized Chinese strategy website, something like, I don't know, the Chinese Channel Fireball or Star City Games or it's Julian.com? <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. So first of all, people do read the major English sites. So Chinese magic players tend to have a decent grasp of the English language, at least when it comes to reading. Yeah. So the Star City Games, Channel Fireballs, it's Julian.coms <laughs> of the world, people do read those. Uh, there's also a couple of Chinese, China only websites and the biggest one in China is actually called, uh, Yingdi. So actually I'll spell it out for you. It's I Y I N G D I.com. I yeah, probably have it, it in the show notes. Have it in the show notes. Yeah. It covers a lot of the major games, even like Hearthstone and others, but it was the biggest, it has been the biggest site for magic in China. It's all in Chinese. But if you go there, you'll, you'll see a lot of strategy discussion. You'll figure out where the big tournaments are. That's a major, major one. Uh, there's another one called the meditators.org. It's also setting up a new domain. I think it's just called theflame.com or MTG the Flame. That's kind of equivalent to MTG the Source. Basically, so a good friend of mine in Beijing. Well, it used to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? It's, it's, it's legacy and eternal specific content. And they do a lot of, they do a lot of uh, original content. They also do a lot of 
translated content, for example, your articles, articles that you've written, I think some of them are on there. The Sean Brown's This Week in Legacy, that's also on there, like translated every every week into Chinese. There's volunteers yeah, who I remember do that. that. One of the guys who, who wrote a pretty big article about, I think, mana bases in Legacy or Magic in general that Sean then published. Yes, so that, that's, the, that's the owner of the site. So that's the guy, that's my friend I'm talking about. So uh, uh, Chen or, or just Chang, C-H-E-N-G. Yeah, so he, he's also a, a, a great person for creating content. He does a lot of things like Chinese commentary on English matches. Uh, he has content like that that's gone on to MTG Goldfish. So it's a lot of good resources for Magic players. So IND and meditators.org, those are both great sites if you can read Chinese and you want to see what's going on. I will also add that there's this thing in China that people may have heard about. It's called WeChat. So WeChat is this, it's basically this social app that everyone uses. I would say 99% of Chinese people use. It's a combination of Facebook, WhatsApp, and Twitter. And so you can subscribe to public accounts on WeChat, which are essentially just like RSSs. And a lot of the major sites that I mentioned and other content producers, they have their own channels that you can subscribe to. So if you get the WeChat app, you could actually subscribe to a lot of this regular content. Some of the content, they come out every every week or even every day. So I would definitely just say that if you can read some Chinese, <laughs> <laughs> you you can definitely find a wealth of information. They, they, they do a lot of translated content into Chinese from not only the English sites, uh, Europe site, European sources, but also the Japanese sources as well. So there's no shortage of oh, That's great. That's great. So generally speaking about uh, specifically legacy in China, what is the metagame like or what do people prefer to play? I'm asking because uh, just at GP Birmingham, I met Kai again, Kai Savatari, a friend of ours. And he told me that every time he comes to Europe, he's like, oh, I totally forgot about this deck and I totally forgot about that deck. Because he told me in, for example, Japan, People don't play elves. He's like, no, nobody ever plays elves. Everybody only plays Sneak Show, Show and Tell, Miracles, Delva, and that's it. There's nothing else. Like, obviously, he's accelerating, but is there something that you picked up on uh, in China that people really like playing? Like, out of Japan, we sometimes see these crazy cards that drop. Like, that's the one I will never forget that is on a Delva list where the opponent has to sacrifice two creatures and it has Delve. So what is it that you usually encounter at big tournaments in, in China? Yeah, first of all, I have to say the Japanese always have these crazy lists where, you know, the four ofs become three ofs <laughs> and the, the zero ofs become one ofs. And it's just, it just perplexes me. It just seems like they're throwing pet cards into their decks and somehow winning with them. Anyway, that's a total tangent. But in terms of China, I, you just have to realize that China is just so massive. So there are different metagames regionally. So I'll give you an example. In Beijing... I would say that it's pretty much like a North American metagame in the sense that there are good representations of combo decks, Delver decks, blue decks, and all kinds of stuff. You know, you might have someone rocking Nick Fit or whatever. So I think in general, first of all, I will say that China has, you'll find everything. You'll find people who have their pet decks or decks that they, they go to. In Beijing, it's a lot of fair blue decks and I would say a fair amount of death and taxes and things like that. In Shanghai, it's really interesting. I would say that in Shanghai, they really love their chalice and <laughs> blood moon decks. <laughs> so, uh, so beware if you go into Shanghai. I, I remember the first time I played in Shanghai in a weekly, I brought my uh, typical Grixis Delver 
deck and that was the first time i went zero and five i basically got got rocked and <laughs> I, I remember playing against like pox blood moon blood moon affinity and pox again it was just it was crazy i don't want to diminish the shanghai scene i think there are actually some really skilled players but sometimes they there are some real masters of the the blood moon stompy decks over there so if you want to become a good Blood Moon player, you, you travel to Shanghai and you go to the school of Blood Moons and they teach you how to cast Yeah, there's the a couple time. of good players who <laughs> seem like to only play red decks. So there's also some really skilled burn players I've seen in, in Shanghai. I'm not joking. <laughs> uh, of course, elves is all over the place. So I, I, I ran into elves in Shanghai, ran into elves in, in Beijing. And then there's also different regions as well. Like, for example, Guangzhou that I talked about that has the... The Invitational and Hong Kong, I think they really like their Chalice decks. They really like their Steel Stompy, Robots, Metal Worker kind of decks as well. All kinds of stuff, you know, and you'll have players that try a different brew every week. So you, there's no shortage of surprises. It's not, you're not going to run into the, oh, this is, you know, Delver country or this is Czech Pile country or you'll, you'll, you'll see all kinds of decks here. Awesome. Talking about content once again, are there actually streamers? Like, I never see Chinese streamers on Twitch, but there might be other platforms that Chinese. Yeah, use. so I have to admit that I I don't follow a lot of streaming content in China, but there's a ton. So there are actually Chinese streaming sites like Bilibili.com, and basically Twitch is not very fast in China, and so people have their own streaming websites which are which actually have more users than twitch i think oh really yeah and and so you can find a lot of streams for that as well but of course the streams are also in chinese so that makes it a little bit harder i mean there are probably a minority of players who stream on twitch but i would say that's not the majority so if you actually follow the meditators.org it's basically like a chinese version of the source chang he puts a lot of content out there that or or collects a lot of content that's related to streaming legacy matches as well. And and I also want to say that the major tournaments that we have, they're all streamed. So they're, there's also, they're, they're, they are also covered and people are actually get on camera for that as well. But that's really exciting to me, especially that you mentioned that more people are watching on those websites than on Twitch probably. Because to, to us Westerners, like China is this big black box. We hardly ever get any content out of China. And we, we also don't really, like I didn't even know that people translated and read my articles. And when you tell me like there's this huge scene that we are missing out on, I'm really happy that we are doing this, this show today. And maybe there's a chance that we can even get those, like that's something that I would like to do, to get those VODs of uh, the big Chinese tournaments and maybe host them on YouTube where they might be more accessible to, to uh, a Western audience. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think that's a, definitely an opportunity. I would say, though, that the, you know, people often talk about there being two internets in the world, the, the one that we all know and love and the one that's in China because there's a there's a firewall in China. So a lot of... I wrote my, my bachelor thesis about that. Yeah, so I, I feel like I, I need to say a little bit about that because like, it, it, you know, first of all, like a lot of the content is in Chinese, so it's, it's not as accessible to folks outside. But also a lot of people need what's called a VPN to actually access certain sites in China where they're actually blocked. So things like Facebook and Twitter are typically blocked in China, but, you know, savvier people, I, I guess uh, you and I can, <laughs> can bypass that uh, and, you know, have this recording and all that stuff. But yes, I would definitely say that, you know, there's a ton of people in China. And so there's a very vibrant magic scene here as well that people may not know very well. 
So talking about the scene, there's one question that came up the most when I polled my my uh, audience, I want to say, um, and that is the Chinese secondary market. Uh, first of all, is there some kind of centralized website where people get their cards from or do they buy from yeah, their local game store or is it is it about trading? Like where do people get most of their cards from? First of all, I want to say that the online economy is 10 times ahead in China than anywhere in the world. Like, oh, wow. China is a place where you can literally get food from every restaurant in in your city and it can be delivered to you if it's nearby in like 30 minutes or less with basically no cost. Like the infrastructure for delivery and online transactions is just unimaginable. I think even for folks listening in the US, like you just have no idea that you can do everything online. Like I, I, I can eat three meals a day at home because they're delivered to me. So I want to get that out of the way. But having said that, Yes, there is a huge uh, online marketplace for everything, not just magic. So it's called Taobao, T-A-O-B-A-O. It's basically like the, the, the eBay of China and it's super convenient. You can basically search and buy and sell magic cards, any magic card essentially from the site and the shipping costs are very low. So yes, there's, a, there's a definitely a secondary market and also the barrier to entry to become a buyer or seller is incredibly low. And so, yes, uh, to answer your question, you there's a vibrant online, uh, there's a there's a there's a vibrant secondary market for everything. You can go to local, the LGSs and buy, but all the LGSs also sell online, so you can go to their online store. So it's not like you got um, a specifically magic website like uh, Magic Hub Market or Star City Games, but it's more like like you mentioned this this eBay like website where you get access to pretty much everything. Yeah, it's just done through Taobao. Like you can just search for magic cards on there and everything is on there. All the stores participate. So there hasn't really been a need for a magic specific marketplace like an MKM or a Channel Fireball or a Star City. And like, what is the price level like? Like, because I know that you, me and a couple of others, we have like shifted a lot of cards from Europe to Canada, to North America, sometimes even to China and... I wonder, like, what is it like in, in China? Like, how do the prices compare? Should, should we go to China to buy, get our Chinese foils, or is it not worth it? <laughs> so that's, that's a that's a multifaceted question. So first of all, I'll just say that generally for cards, they're using comparable to North American TCB, TCG player pricing. So if you just want to get your standard or legacy staples, they're pretty much equivalent to the same prices in Europe or the States. There might be some arbitrage opportunity for certain cards, but it doesn't differ too much. That that's the I guess that's the level one answer because people actually look at prices based on, I guess, Taobao completed, which is just like eBay completed, but they also look at TCG, TCG player and stuff like that, like North American pricing. But going a little bit deeper than that, if you're into pimp stuff, I would say that the pimp, the foil stuff for Chinese and Japanese and Korean cards have a lower premium in China than they might be in other places in the world, right? So if you want to get Japanese foils, people don't value them very highly. So you can probably get them cheaper here than in other places. If you somehow are a big fan of Chinese foils, then you can basically find them for the same price, if not lower than English foils. So Just something to keep in mind is that the Asian cards generally are very popular and very non-scarce, so you can get them fairly easily and, and at a pretty low price. 
Oh, that's interesting because it kind of mirrors how it used to be in Germany. Because I remember like until 2009, 2010, you actually had to pay a premium if you wanted to get an English file instead of a German file because the German file was considered lower value than the English file. And then like after a while, this completely turned around and now you have to pay a big premium for, for the German files. And even though I know that at least in, in Germany, the Chinese foils aren't regarded as highly as like the Japanese or Korean foils, there's still people who like prefer them. So yeah, it would be interesting to figure out how much of them we had to, to purchase in Beijing to, to make it worth to fly there just for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's everything has an exception, right? So people may know that there are sort of two Chinese languages. So there's traditional Chinese and simplified. And some of the earliest foil printings of cards back in the day when they had foils, they started foils, they're in traditional Chinese. So some of the older foils in Chinese are also pretty high premium or they're, they're just scarce, period. But I would just say that for the more recent stuff in the past five to 10 years, there isn't a huge premium. So it sounds kind of like maybe where Germany was at in the past with, with your own language cards. Yes, sounds pretty similar. So what is what is considered pimp in China? Like if somebody pimped out their deck, what, where do they go to? Is it like Korean, Japanese, German, Russian, <laughs> I don't know, Portuguese? This is, this is so hard because all pimpers have extreme biases and prejudices, right? So it's it's like if you ask two people who are pimping in, from North America or Germany, what's pimp? You get different answers. I think in China, it's also no different. You have people who really love English foils. You have people who go all Chinese foils. You have people like me who love German foils. So it's really hard to generalize my answer. I know that in maybe in other countries outside of China, people may think that Japanese foils are super hot or something like that. But if you ask players in China, they're not really into that. So I guess it's all in the eye of the beholder is my is my my dodgy answer. So is it also something about like some Japanese Chinese rivalry or is, is that not an issue? Well, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that. I, I think the Chinese and Japanese historically have been rivals. Uh, I, Probably don't, won't go into the, the, the yeah. history behind it. But yeah, I mean, that's probably the reason why Japanese cards aren't placed at a huge premium in China, I would say. Um, and I've never asked Japanese players if they like Chinese cards. I suspect the answer is probably no. So. <laughs> and like, do you have other players in Beijing, do they travel overseas to tournaments in Europe and North America? Or is that not really much of a thing? Because like, I've been to North America twice for GPs, but uh, I don't know about China. Like, do they usually stick to China or is there also some kind of scene where, the, where people talk to you and they're like, hey, James, should we go to this and this GP together outside of China? So the answer is it really depends. There are players who are, I would say, relatively more affluent and they're able to travel to many different countries to play. There are dealers, players that, in fact, if you've been to a Magic GP, you probably see some Asian dealers and, and players, right? You're probably sitting across from them. So I would say that there are plenty of players, especially for Legacy, that find their way to different places to play. However, for general travel of Chinese into other countries, generally it requires a visa. And the same goes for people who want to travel to, to China, obviously. So I think for most of the players, there's no issue getting the visas approved. There are other players that I know who, for example, they work for the, for the party. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. And they're not yeah. actually allowed to leave China. So... Oh, really? Yeah, they're, for their jobs. Associated? Okay, yeah, because they're associated with the Communist Party, they're not allowed to leave. So I have a couple of friends who are in those situations. And can they like study abroad or something? No, basically, they've already done all their studying. And so 
now oh, that they, they're working they pledged in... their life to the communist party yeah and they reached a certain they have level to play monorail decks all the time maybe that's why <laughs> people in shanghai play so, so much of that <laughs> yeah 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 so there are players that are able to travel and have mobility there are players also that for costs and other reasons they primarily stay within china or maybe at most they will feel more comfortable going to a japanese tournament or a tournament that's nearby as opposed to north america or europe so the answer really is it depends. I often have friends who I also see at North American GPs so it's, that are from China. So it, it, it really depends on the person. Uh, speaking about these legal issues, what's actually the, the status of magic? Is it like called into question? Because I remember I was talking to you about maybe coming to China and then we can play poker together, which is a common hobby of ours. And then you told me, oh, no, we would have to go to, I think, Macau or Hong Kong for that because poker is banned. But magic is perfectly fine, right? Is there any kind of discussion in, in politics or the scene uh, about it? Actually, in general, magic is fine in China. It's not really gambling. You know, Wizards has done a lot to avoid any association with gambling. So that's really applied and paid off in China as well. In fact, there really isn't an issue with running magic tournaments or people coming to China to play magic or people leaving China to play magic elsewhere. Magic Online is used as well. It's just really slow because of the VPN and the, the firewall and the connections. Yeah, I played against Chinese players online and they kept apologizing that they are so slow and sometimes they even timed out, I can imagine. Yeah, so latency can be an issue, but magic, both physical magic and also online magic, there's no problem. Of course, we also know about the upcoming MTG arena. And I think that's going to be a game changer for China because they actually have a major Chinese internet company that's distributing it in, in China. And so... I think oh, that's really, really going to grow the game. So the, the distributor is Tencent, who's also behind the WeChat thing that I mentioned a few minutes ago. And so there's going to be a lot of legitimacy for online play. If not Magic Online, then definitely MTG Arena. They might use Chinese servers or whatnot. That's going to be huge. I think it's really going to... Uh, my friends and I are basically saying that this is going to... You know, Magic is going to blow up, right? I mean, it's going to blow up in a really good way. It's going to become much more massive in terms of people knowing about the game. Because online play, no matter what game you're playing, there's lots of Chinese players playing the game. You know, outside of Magic. You're talking about Hearthstone or League of Legends, whatnot. And so this is also going to be a game changer, I think. With regards to gambling, I recently heard that there was some kind of policy where RPTQs didn't want to have folks under 18 years old participate. I'm not sure if that's technically related to wanting to not be associated with gambling or age rules, but I would say in general, gambling Magic doesn't really have a gambling association. Okay, okay. So one thing I know um, about uh, legal stuff in China, and I'm not sure if it's that way still, but I remember a couple of cards had to ch had their artwork changed back in the day. Like there's, uh, I don't remember the DXX card, like Dredge, skelet Dredge Skeletons or something. Like you couldn't show skeletons or pentagrams or any kind of religious symbols. Like, you know, Unholy Strength, they have this pentagram in the background of the beta card. And in the Chinese version that was reprinted later that used the same artwork, they had to remove the pentagram. And also a couple of like skeletons had to be like remodeled to be people or something. Is that still a thing or is that policy gone by now? You know, I haven't heard much about that. In fact, the unholy strength pentagram thing, I remember that was an issue in North America, right? It was way back in the day where they had to remove oh, the pentagram too, yeah. From, yeah. from the card itself. I think maybe in fourth edition or something like that. So I don't think that's anything specific for China. And because the game is so huge here and is in the Chinese language, I think Wizards is probably just really careful now to not even print cards that remotely could step on someone's proverbial toes yeah. so i don't think that 
doesn't seem to be an issue. I haven't, uh, wasn't there also this new set that was like only legal and standard in China? Oh yeah, the, uh, it's this international series or whatever, whatever they call it. And it has like a couple of reprints, but also a couple of new cards. Most importantly, these two planeswalkers, like a green one and a blue one. And it can only be played when you're physically playing in China. So if there was like a GP in China, you could play those cards. But if it was outside, you couldn't. And that only refers to standard, by the way. Like uh, you can always play them in Legacy in any kind of format, I right. believe. But for standards... Technically, China, for the time these cards are going to be legal, has its own metagame. And I know how I feel about that, but like, let me hear how you feel about that and also how like the general scene in China has, has welcomed that. Or Yeah, yeah uh, so how I feel about it is that I don't really play standard. So I asked my friends who play <laughs> what they think about it, and they said the cards are garbage, so it doesn't matter. So I guess it's maybe more of a PR thing. I think people are going to play whatever they're playing in standard these days instead of these cards. And so I, it seems like a non-issue. I kind of just mentioned it just to raise the point that Wizards is very conscious of the fact that magic is a huge thing in China. And so they're going to promote things here and they're going to make sure that they don't offend anybody, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, I, I can imagine that the Chinese market must be huge for Wizards and that's something they re really want to get involved in. There's probably a lot of money to be made. The cards they printed... I'm actually happy they are pretty crappy, and I think it might very, very well be a very conscious decision on Wizards' part to make them really bad, because I think you... I only looked at the Green Planeswalkers. If you look at that and you made it cost one less, it would still be horrible. So I think they really, really made sure that these cards are not going to have a big impact, because otherwise it would be really weird where like, you play a GP in China and your metagame might be dominated by some card you've never played against, and it could lead to some feel-bads, I guess. James, one thing I wanted to talk about, because especially right now, it's in the quote-unquote news almost every day and people are freaking out about it. And they have very, very polarized opinions on this, like more than on anything else in Magic right now, I would say. Even more than the quality of Magic Online, <laughs> which says a lot about that topic. And that is the so-called Chinese fakes. They've been coming into the market and people are either like super scared what they might do to the game in the terms of undermining Wizards' authority over printing magic cards. Whereas on the other side of the argument, people are like happy about them and maybe even embrace them because they consider them a way of bringing down the overall cost into getting especially eternal magic. So first of all, what do you know about those things? Like, are they actually Chinese fakes? Because I always had an issue with the word because I'm not even sure if those cards are actually coming from China. Like you sometimes hear the news that some kind of fake forgery backdoor facility has been has closed by the authorities but i'm not even sure like if i was to buy a so-called chinese fake on ebay is it even from china or is it like some kind of general name we apply to it because that's like the stereotype of, of products coming out of china all right so first i want to say that yes there's definitely a non-zero amount of fake cards counterfeit cards coming from china but a lot of things that we have and use things like your phone your shoes your clothing come from china i don't think it's unusual that there happen to be chinese factories or people who are in a minority making counterfeit cards the one thing i just want to say is that i've talked to a lot of magic players about this considering the fact that people are invested in the secondary market they want to be treating magic seriously almost all the folks that i've talked to really look down on fakes and they do not want to buy fakes or own fakes or have anything to do with fakes. So 
I think that mentality is not really different from anywhere else in the world. If you're playing in a tournament and you care about the collectability of the, the card game, you want to be using real cards. A friend told me the other week that he actually had a player come into the store and ask the people at the store whether the cards that he had were fake because he was concerned about whether or not they were real. And so, yes, are there fake or counterfeit cards being produced in China? Yes. But do players want to have these cards? I think it's debatable. So you're specifically referring to the Chinese players you talked to, right? Yes, locally. So if you want it, is there like easy access to those cards? Because I've never looked into that, but a friend of mine recently told me he just like went on eBay and if you know the right search terms, you can easily find them. And then he showed me like a perfect, like a really near perfect underground sea. And he told me he bought it for like eight euros and I couldn't believe it. But like to me, even looking closer, it looked like perfect. And I think the issue for those cards is that unless you like look into every one of those cards with a magnifying glass or something, you will never spot those. So I wonder. Would you say that? The, would you say that that card is indistinguishable from the actual card? I'm just curious because I've not bought the eight euro underground C. Not indistinguishable because them like I haven't run all the tests that people know about. Like somebody recently even told me like if you look at the backside of a, a legit magic card and you, you look into the green mana symbol and then there's like a green ball on top of it and inside that green ball there's like three pixels that are red. And if those are present, it's like a legit card. And I don't look for stuff like that. I don't even know about stuff like that. And I think the most important thing is, like you mentioned, is it indistinguishable or not? But also, is it practically indistinguishable? It, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so I also like talked about that to a friend of mine who's a judge. And we wrote, an, like I didn't write the article, but I somewhat contributed to bring the people together. And they also talked about how once you play those cards in a tournament and it's too much work for judges to actually find out whether those cards are fake or not, then those cards for all reasons like of playing a tournament, they pretty much become legit cards. Also, like there's there's this thing about where people say, yeah, but if you tear, tear the card apart and like there, there should be this blue layer inside, yeah, but nobody is ever gonna do that, right? So to me, it, it's also kind of like a philosophical issue. Like once this card becomes pretty much a perfect representation of, of a magic card, is it even a fake anymore? Like, yes, it's a fake, but for practical reasons, it's not. And I think once that happens, should it ever happen, is like the real turning point, at which point wizards might right. step in and do something. Like they, they implemented this hologram on the bottom of the cards that's apparently super hard to fake, so people stick to older cards. Like the easiest thing is like faking, I guess, onslaught fetch lands, which there's always going to be high demand and reasonable prices. So I wonder whether we are actually ever going to come to that point where a card will be a 100% perfect representation. And if that is even worth it, because like once a card is like a 95% representation of a card, and might be distinguishable, it's probably not worth to go even further to make it perfect. So I wonder if we're ever going to get there in the first place. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting topic. And I just want to say my two cents on this, because to me, it's not really about, oh, who's producing the fakes? And the fakes could be coming from China, they'd be coming from some other country. But that's not really the key. I think the reason why counterfeits exist is because cards have a certain value. I would equate it to, you know, you have a server somewhere and there's hackers wanting to break into the server and wanting to do something illegal, so to speak. So 
I think the onus or the struggle is really not only on the people wanting to do bad things to make a profit, because that's wanting to make a profit off counterfeits and whatnot has existed since the beginning of time, not just for magic. But there's also an onus on the the card prices. There's also an onus on producing cards which are not counterfeitable. I mean, let's face it, no one's going to create a counterfeit card of a basic land because that has no value or a $1 bill, right? Arabian Nights Mountain. <laughs> Arabian Nights Mountain, maybe. Yes, that's that's definitely an exception. But I don't think it's fair to pin this thing to say, oh, let's blame certain people in a certain country for wanting to do something illegal. I mean, there are people who want to profit from opportunities in every situation. And so are fakes existing in China? Can you get fakes in China if you really wanted to and looked around? Yes. But I think there's a bigger issue beyond just that. And shutting down one counterfeiter may just be the tip of the iceberg. I don't know if that really solves anything. It's kind of a cat and mouse thing. So yeah, to me, it's also like, I don't really like this this term, Chinese fakes, because it's, it feels... I mean, people don't mean it, but it feels like it's blaming China in a way. To me, it's like, I don't even know if these cards are coming out of China. So yeah, it's it's probably just some some word people use. Uh, and there might be a lot of cards coming out of China, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if the same wasn't true for North America or Europe. Yeah, but it's definitely degree. an interesting conversation about counterfeits because just taking the locale out of the equation, and I don't want to go too much into this. We, you know, we can talk about it some other time, but... I think it, it, it's only a matter of time when ca when cards become exactly like the originals. It's only a matter of time, in my opinion. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens if these really expensive cards still continue to be worth counterfeiting. So where, where do you think that the long game of this is going to go? Are we actually going to get to a point where prices for Eternal Staples will come down? Or are they going to maintain the, the level that we're currently seeing, which is like over $800 for an underground whiteboard at underground UC? What the fuck, man? This, I can't yeah. it's like this. <laughs> I, I don't have a very high opinion of Wizards with regards to how they handle the secondary market or the eternal formats. I'm just maybe more of a cynic having now having seen a lot of the things they've done in recent years. I don't want to be the person on my soapbox complaining all the time. I would just say that it's not in their prerogative or priority. If Wizards wanted to, they would probably just only have standard and modern formats and, and limited formats and not anything, not this baggage or mess because let's face it, the, the RL or the reserve list is never going away. There's no incentive for them to abolish it. There's no, it's just more than they want to be bothered with given that they have other priorities. So You know what I wonder about? I've never played Hearthstone, but people tell me about that Hearthstone actually introduced something that's similar to Standard. And now they have this wild format, which is apparently like what is Vintage and Legacy, where you can play all the cards. And I really do wonder how things are going to play out on Hearthstone, because eventually they're going to run into similar issues where people just prefer playing the old formats, as long as, as they have like some decent balance. I don't know how it works in Hearthstone like you. Since it's all digital, you might not even need like a ban list. You can maybe just tweak cards. And I think they, they are just power levels of single cards, um, which is something Wizards generally tries to avoid. Like power level errata is not very popular, or at least not part of their policy these days. So I really, really wonder how Hearthstone is going to look like in a couple of years when people might be like not interested in paying as much money for it anymore and will stick to the older formats. And maybe, maybe people even host tournaments for that. So I'm really really going to be interested in how that works out yes it's really interesting because at the end of the day i think players are very pragmatic or practical 
they're going to gravitate to games or formats where there's a substantial player base. And so for Hearthstone or Magic, in the end, it's going to be what has the largest player base and is it, it does it pass some kind of barometer for being enjoyable. In China, at least, there's a huge, huge modern scene. And I don't know if players love the format, but the fact that you can go into a weekly and there are so many more players than in Legacy, that says a lot about the game because you're, you're investing in the game. So you want to be able to play with lots of friends and people. And so for Hearthstone, I would think it's no different. It it's really comes down to, are people going to be playing that vintage format or are people all going to be gravitating towards the new standard format? That will really dictate what happens. And, and the function of that is, are the formats broken or balanced? Because that will also get players in. So Yeah. Oh, and you, uh, since you mentioned modern, and this is basically an eternal podcast, <laughs> what do you know, like a very short um, drop on that, is there vintage in, in China? And if so, how many people do play it? There is no vintage in China. I mean, there may be some vintage side events once in a blue moon when you have them at GPs. And the Guangzhou Invitational I mentioned also has a vintage side event. But that's like once in a blue moon. That's like once in a year. So there really isn't much popularity of vintage, sadly. Okay, so how about Commander? Like EDH, is, is it a thing? So yes, Commander and EDH is definitely pretty popular in China. In fact, one of the side events at a non-Legacy GP was going to be Legacy and got replaced by a Commander <laughs> event, 1v1 Commander. And there's also a lot of popularity with some of the Commander staples on the secondary market. And so I do not deny that Commander is a huge draw in China, just like the rest of the world. So you mentioned the one versus one commander, so it's not as big as like the EDH, the multiplayer commander, or do they play both? I'm not sure, to be honest, but I think people <laughs> are likely to play both. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. So James, uh, let's wrap it up from here. Thank you so much for being on the show today and telling us everything about magic in China. So last question, what's the best season in Beijing? Like if I was to come to Beijing, what's the best time of the year? Non-metric related. <laughs> the, uh, people like to say that Beijing only has two seasons. It's either extremely hot or extremely cold. So you kind of have to pick your poison. I, I actually think coming here in the summer is not bad. You know, right now it's pretty nice. It's under 30, 30 degrees Celsius. And so it's kind of something that I can tolerate at least. And so I would recommend coming here during the summer. There's also just just come by you know say hi to the players here players here are very welcoming accommodating they also speak english so don't feel intimidated at all if you want to play magic in china great thank you so much so james how can people reach you if they want to talk to you on twitter facebook or like where do you handle your public relations <laughs> <laughs> i'm not as well known as you are but i do have a twitter handle it's james underscore hsu james underscore hsu And you can also check out the Humans of Magic website that I have, which has the podcast episodes on humansofmagic.com. That's basically two good places you can find me. There's also this, this great article that you wrote for my website, Why We Love Legacy or The Allure of Legacy, uh, that I'm also going to link in the show notes, because to me, that's something that I read every once in a while because it speaks so much to me. And yeah, I, I really recommend reading that. Like if you identify as a legacy player, James is pretty much speaking straight from your heart in the, that article. So I really have to get that out there as well. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I definitely would say that I'm not anywhere near the legacy player you are, but I do enjoy the format a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. Oh, and by the way, we never talked about that. You actually wrote a book on magic and you're actually planning your next book, right? We, we also have to link that. 
<laughs> yes, that's right. So I have a book How on Amazon. that? <laughs> uh, it, it's just a little thing. Uh, I, I have a little a, thing. <laughs> I, have a, I have a book that I've written about my experiences playing Magic, primarily Legacy. It's called Magic the Addiction, and you can find it on Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle. It also covers a little bit of playing Magic in China because that's what I went through. So if you want more details on that, feel free to have a look at the book. Yeah. I will certainly do. Like I, I even read it every once in a while. Like, and I even distributed it to my friends. He gave me a couple of extra copies. As far as I can tell, they really like it. Well, thanks. Thank you. And especially thanks to all the people on Patreon who are supporting all the stuff I do, like the videos, podcasts, or just generally just really want to support this. So big shout out to you guys. I know I should be putting out even more content than I currently do. And I actually feel like I even want to say guilty about that. So thank you so much. You guys are really, really helping me out, probably more than you imagine. So thanks a lot for that. Thanks a lot for everyone who's listening. Um, check out itsjulian.com. Hit me up on Twitter uh, at itsjulian23. And otherwise, see you again next episode. <laughs> I want to say bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.